I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hello and welcome to Bitches on Comics. I'm your host, Essie Fleenor, riding solo here today. Very excited to be here with a super special guest. Oh my gosh. Joining us is fan of the pod I found out before we started recording and the awesome comic creator, Sierra Barnes. How you doing, Sierra? Woot woot. I am so excited to be here. Do not let my calm tone of voice fool you. I am <laughs> vibrating it's on the practiced. inside. <laughs> I, yes, I'm trying to be cool in front of my heroes, uh, and that's 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 where we are right now. When I'm all like, oh, I'm a little um, overwhelmed. Oh my goodness! Um, you know, Sierra, just real quick, you want to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, and then we'll we'll jump into some hard hitting questions. Just kidding. My name is Sierra Barnes. I am a cartoonist uh, who started out thinking that she was going to be a historian, and so I. Did a lot of uh, studying, studying history <laughs> in in college, and studying history after college. Uh, I lived a year in Austria, where I asked a bunch of people 
hard-hitting questions, something maybe you didn't appreciate quite as much as um, maybe I should have thought about. <laughs> uh, and then I came back and was working a bunch of jobs that I hated and was like, you know what, I'm going to make a comic on the side. And that comic was Hans Vogel is Dead, which is now out through Dark Horse, uh, which I'm very just super absolutely excited about. There's a lot of excitement happening here is what I'm saying. I'm very excited. <laughs> I love all of it. Well, we're so excited that you're here. It's it's it feels really really magical cuz I you know, we didn't even know that you were a fan of the pod when it all got set up. So it's just so cool. You've listened to so much. You know, I was like, "Oh, in this most recent interview, you're like, yeah, that was a heavy one." I was like, "Oh, dang, you listened." Wow. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's just it's cool to have you here. You know, I I have all my questions written down, but you said something and I told you this might happen <laughs> that I have to know about, which is, you know, you it, Hans Vogel is your first ongoing comic. You've written some short comics. Um, it's now a graphic novel. It's been collected into volumes. Um, we have one volume out so far here in the U.S. And yes. I'm curious for you, you know, when you start a web comic, when you start a project that's like, this is my first, you don't really know. You don't know if it's going to cohere. You don't know if everybody's going to like it or appreciate it, especially if you're bringing as much historicity to it as you are, as much intensity as you are. <laughs> you're not sure if people are going to, you know, connect with it. Oh, yeah. I um, I was very deliberate about starting it as a web comic. Uh, and part of that was because I, you know, when I was in like middle school and high school, web comics were like starting to be a thing and explode and all of that. And I was reading a bunch of really weird web comics that I absolutely adored. Um, and I was just like, hot damn, making a web comic is the coolest thing anyone can do. I wish I can be that cool someday. Uh, and then like in 2015, I realized that they just let anyone do it. Um, <laughs> like you can literally just put a comic on the internet, which is crazy. And I was like, look, I'm, I don't have any illusions about this, right? Like I am making uh, a meditative comic about a dead Nazi inspired by my extremely specific love of postmodern German surrealist fiction um, and my love of fairy tales and random historical things. I don't think there will be a single person on the planet who will be as into this book as I am, but I can put it on the internet and no one is stopping me. Um, I did. I was like, I can't pitch this book anywhere. Like, I mean, I will pitch this book anywhere, but realistically, this is an insane premise. Um, I am 100% insane. And every time I talk to people about it on shows, I'm still like, how are people not just like looking at me strangely and walking away? I'm like, yes, here's Hans Vogel. He's my fail son. He's a Nazi. He's terrible. He dies. <laughs> and um, that's the first step to him getting to be a better person. Uh, and, and it just has continuously surprised me how many people have been extremely kind and uh, been going on this absolutely bizarre little journey with me <laughs> like I I would be lying if I wasn't saying that like every time somebody has a positive comment or says that they've read it or you know leaves a comment on the on the uh web comic that I'm just not like clapping my little hands together with glee like a Victor like a little Victorian child just like <laughs> delighted my little sailor cap if you leave a comment on on the comic, uh, that is, I hope that that's what you're imagining because that's what I'm doing. Is when I'm pressing the approve button on the comic comments, I'm like, ooh, hooray! I've been an agreeable little boy. Someone has left me a comment. 
How delightful. Please, sir, can I have some more? <laughs> Please, sir, can I have some feedback? Anything, sir. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, again, I like it's people say, like, make short comics for your first comic. And I agree with that because at the stage that I've I've been doing Hans Vogel since 2015 and it's 2023 right now. And I'm not thinking about how many years that is. Uh, and like, I'm going a little bit insane. I'm, I'm fully aware that my dedication to this comic borders on obsessive, but I would not be making comics if I had started with anything other than my white whale. <laughs> like, I love Hans Vogel so much that that, that silly burning love is what has propelled me into this and onward. And it has changed so much since my initial conception of it. Um, it continues to change a lot when I find new and fun, exciting information about weird history things that I want to put in there, mm. um, which is part of why I love it so much. It's the, the thing about comics is that like, there's the two styles of writing. There's the like gardener and the architect, right. That people talk about. Mm. Um, I'm sure that there's like many in-betweens on that, but I, I am naturally a gardener. I like to just sort of let the story happen and see where it goes but comics sort of forces you into being an architect yeah. just by the nature of the medium uh so I, I like to cling to the little bits of ivy growing on the walls of the house that I'm constructing um just to just to keep things to keep things spicy well and, and I think you know at least for me and I'm, I'm neurodivergent so um this is this is like my tried and true is like, I'll get bored. Like if I've over oh, yeah. something I'm working on, I'll be like, well, I already know what happens. So I know, okay, the end. I have to have- Yeah, 100%. Kind of, you know, even if I, you know, use that architect, I build the castle. I need there to be rooms I've never gone in that I discover yeah. alongside the character. And, you know, whether or not that stays in the final product of whatever I'm creating is, you know, that's a future me's problem. Um, oh, yeah. You know, in, in the moment, I need that ability to be surprised by- the character by the plot by the surroundings like I've you know I've written someone into a place before and been like oh this will be like just a scene and now that you know is that place that I wrote them into is like now the heart of the whole book and I'm like well I didn't oh, yeah. know I didn't know I was gonna do that <laughs> like but it's beautiful that's that's like one of my favorite things about it though is that it's like sometimes you're just like oh yeah okay you know the scene is gonna go this way and then you realize as you're doing it you get you get the frustration of like this isn't the way that this should be going and then you you have to sort of stump around a little bit and do a little Hercule Poirot mustache twirling <laughs> until you can get like the real solution to the problem and it's I'll do that all real. the time is I'll have a script where it's like okay this is this is how it usually how the chapter ends and I'll be like this is how the chapter ends and then the closer I get to actually like finalizing the pages of the chapter's end the more I'm like mm, no it's not <laughs> no it's <laughs> nope, not nope 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 nah I drew an offhand prop in another panel that I hadn't written into the script. And now that prop is the basis for how Don't this even. chapter is going to end. And that's just how we're going to have to do it. That literally just happened to me with a novel I'm working on. I had like, I needed the characters to be able to do something they couldn't do because it's a, a fantasy novel. They needed to be able to do something they couldn't do without a tool. No, no character mm -hmm. had the powers to do this thing. And it had to be like, someone was kind of trump carding everyone else. Um, and so I was like, okay, well, oh, well, there's this like legend of this thing. So it could be like that. And then I was like, okay, but that's so stupid and such a deus ex machina if it comes out of nowhere. And so then I was like, where's it going to come up sooner in the story? And now it's like, 
become this whole metaphor in the story. And it's like, you know, it shows up in these moments when the characters are mad at each other and it like symbolizes their undying connection. And it's like, get out of here. Get out yeah. of here. That was supposed to be a tiny little thing. Nope. 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 Now it's nope. a whole story. <laughs> I feel like maybe this is just like a neurodivergent thing, but I have a list of like everything every item that every character is having on them at any given point in time so that I make sure that I don't like forget what is part of like, there's a page in the first volume of Hans pulling out his emergency pack and he, and it's just a full page spread of everything that's in his pack. Mm. And part of that was because I wanted to know what was in his pack and like what I could use if he gets stuck into something later on and like what he would have at his disposal. And the other part of it is that I'm just like, I spent so long on that page, <laughs> like not necessarily just like drawing it, but trying to figure out what the hell was in that pack because mm-hmm. at that time period, emergency packs were not standardized. Right. Um, if you got shot down, you were like shit out of luck, man. Like you had whatever you decided to bring. Some guys just had a a, bu- a gun with one bullet. Like mm-hmm. it entirely depended on um, where your head was at and how optimistic you felt about. Uh, what would happen if your plane got shot down? Yeah, so, yeah. Like, <laughs> when Hans you know. talks about it as like, this is what's going to get me till I get, you know, I surrender and then I'll get traded back. But there's also like this question in the traded back. And he's like, it won't be that bad. And he's like, will it not be that bad? So that really, yeah. it actually ended up playing so much into what I went to pack. And it's cool to hear that you were like, it was going to be like this pack. And then it's like, oh, now it's this pack. You know, yeah, like, I got to like, figure Hans, it out. Hans pulls out his emergency pack. What's in there? Uh, and then I like, again, extra stuff that is probably never going to be in the rest of the book. But I was like, what about, you know, Hans's two buddies, Fritz and Uli, what, what goes into their packs? And mm-hmm. yeah, like I have this whole other alternate, like scene of all of them talking about what they're putting in their packs. And Fritz mm-hmm. is like the mom friend and he's got all of his like emergency supplies and he's got the flare gun and he's got first aid and he probably packed Hans's pack too honestly mm-hmm. um <laughs> and uli has 34 chocolate bars a <laughs> roll of condoms and a map that contains all of the bars that are still standing in london <laughs> that that does reflect them very much you know also yeah. when you're talking about having to sort of be specific about these details Something I really loved in the volume one from Dark Horse is there's additional back matter. And in some of that, you you sort of you showed how you mapped out one of the sort of, I guess it's a like a hotel lodge way station bar thing. Yeah. Yeah. And you so, were like, I couldn't remember where the animal heads were. So I had to draw yeah. it out and be like, animal head here, an animal head here. And I was like, that is so relatable, but also such a great tool, I think, for burgeoning comic artists to think about using is really diagramming out your spaces so you're not having to remember everything. I am not a spatially intelligent person. I don't <laughs> like, like, relatable. this has been, yeah, this has been one of the things that I found really hard in comics is that I like, I just genuinely... Uh, don't think a lot about like the 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 whole fantasy novel thing where there's a map in the front of the book. Um, I've never given a single crap about those maps. Like I may be the only person who loves reading fantasy stories, and I could not care less about where all these characters are. It does not matter to me. I don't like it for whatever reason. It's like you tell know, me what I the just, vibe of the places. I need to know the yeah. vibe. I need to know yeah. like. 
Like who's sleeping with who? These are the things I need to know. But no, my yeah. wife would like kill people if if they stopped putting maps in the front of the there, there are people who are like very dedicated and they want to see, you know, the the paths that everyone's taking. But I'm like, I couldn't I I don't care what like <laughs> overland path Frodo uses to take to Mordor. All I know is that it's hard and it's long. It takes a long time. And that's like That'll that's do. less important <laughs> to me. So when you're setting a scene, and I'm like, writer Sierra is like, yeah, we're gonna fill this ho- this little inn with a bunch of taxidermy heads. Then artist Sierra is like, great. Now I have where? to remember where all these stupid heads go, <laughs> and how big the room is, and where the bar is in relation, where everyone's standing, so they don't accidentally like move everyone around the room, and like. I hate it so much. <laughs> but it pays but always, off. It really does. I mean, as much as it's like yeah. it's tedious and it's, you know, kind of the the opposite of that like discovery, like that that stuff that keeps us going. It's like the, oh, okay, what exactly is in the pack? Uh, where exactly yeah. is this? But then when you read it, it makes the world feel so rich and lived in. All those little details that are annoying <laughs> to keep straight really bring it all together. <laughs> It does make a difference. Um, I will say I like the scene that I'm drawing right now in volume two is in a very Baroque Royal dining room. And um, Mm. I'm like very much losing my mind, but I also know that like the vibe of this room is over the top extravagant. And if I'm not drawing over the top extravagant chairs and wallpaper and background decorations and stupid background paintings of you know, people killing dragons or whatever, then it that's not going to be the vibe. And the vibe is important. Yeah, that that overpowering, regal, that like intimidation piece. That, yeah, you're right. You're absolutely, I mean, I'm thinking of so many fantasy novels and it's like, if they actually hadn't described the tapestries, I wouldn't have felt the same sort of, you know, ancestral pride or whatever you want to call it, regime uh, stuff, you know what I mean? Yeah, um, when I was living in Austria, I was like doing my best to visit as many museums, castles, everything um, that I could while I was there. Um, and and I spent a lot of time sketching all of them. And one of the castles that we went to was Schönbrunn, which is the, the royal, uh, the imperial capital that the Empress Sisi lived in, mm. in Vienna. Um, and it is oppressive Mm. (laughs) like the gold gilt and the decorations and and if you've ever been to any of the castles that mad king ludwig built in uh in bavaria and he he did like linderhof he did neuschwanstein the disney castle which i Mm. i bitterly resent people calling neuschwanstein the disney castle um like Disney didn't make that castle. Mad King Ludwig <laughs> made that castle. And he yeah, just call it stole what it. it is. Like he stole everything. <laughs> um, That's real. We can get, we, well, we can talk about Disney later. Um, <laughs> but like everything in his, like Ludwig's interior design taste was um, unhinged. He, there was not a surface you could not put gilt on in his opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, he loved a giant painting. He loved an absurdly large ornate wooden dining room table or cabinet or whatever like he was he was the ideal kind of rich person and that he was a rich person who spent so much money on the arts that it was like <laughs> like Mackin Ludwig is cool because he uh, ascended the throne of Bavaria at an extremely tense political time when everyone was trying to unify Germany right 
Um, and he was like, no, I don't think I want to unify Germany. I think what I really want to do is support the arts. And then he just <laughs> dumped a ton of Bavaria's money into building crazy castles and a national opera and uh, funding Wagner's entire career. And then uh, the, like, like a, a bunch of nobles got together and they were like, this guy is too much. We have to kill him. <laughs> and they drowned him in a lake. <laughs> and, too much. Um, yeah. And then Bavaria became part of Germany. And now Bavaria makes stupid amounts of tax money uh, or a bunch of tourist money off of everything that Ludwig built. So in the end, he was right. And um, he's justice somewhere for laughing that King right Ludwig. now. He's somewhere yeah. laughing right now, being like vindication, you know? He yeah. Is. My only thing is that I wish that he hadn't like maybe funded Wagner so much because Wagner was a dick. And yeah, yeah. That that's not a not a pal. Not a pal. Please please bring me onto your podcast where I can talk about <laughs> the tea of Germans who have been dead for two hundred years. <laughs> Well, you know what? This is actually a perfect segue because I, I want to talk a little bit about your your experience as a historian or, a, you know, a history buff is what I saw you call yourself on your website. And then also, you know, you also study comics and that sort of being like a second life for your, your, your studies in history. And, you know, maybe in some ways that means it's absolutely a given that you would bring the two together. But I'm curious when you knew that they would, that you wanted to bring history to your comics and, and how you first brought it together and developed your art style. I don't even think that that was like an active decision that I made. Like I <laughs> genuinely, I, like I think that as long as I was like, oh, I'm going to make a, a comic. It, the, there was a foregone conclusion that it was going to be about history or folklore or some combination <laughs> of the above. And um, it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like literally I just like, if you go inside my brain, there's just like a bunch of random facts about dead people that I'm stupidly passionate about that are just floating around and then like a little rat that's playing the guitar in the corner or something <laughs> like that. Um, <laughs> like and I'm, I'm glad that, that uh, people reading minds isn't real because as soon as you would walk into the room, you would just hear me thinking something like very genuinely. And I, I'm, I mean this with all of my heart about things like, Oh, well, you know, the only reason that the Mongol Empire isn't getting the respect that it deserves for the many technological achievements is because of European racism toward like East Asians. And that continues to live on in fantasy in a way that makes me really mad oh, because yeah. the Mongols did some really cool shit. And I will be the first one to tell you about the cool shit that they did. They did, sure, everyone does a lot of pillaging and stuff of empires, but the British Empire gets to be civilized and Genghis Khan's exactly. empire, which invents passports and the postal system, doesn't get off my back, okay? <laughs> Go fuck yourself, <sighs> England. Um, yeah. Yeah, for real. Yeah, no, I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me hearing that because I... I was like, I don't know exactly how to ask the question because I don't know if it's too obvious of a question. But I mean, I'm it, a huge it a lot nerd. Of <laughs> <laughs> Step one, be a huge nerd. Yeah. It's just like at any given time, I'm just thinking about weird niche history things. And so you got to let it out somewhere. And I'm sure that everyone would like unfollow me on social media if I was just constantly talking about all of the weird history things that I'm constantly thinking about. It's just... <laughs> 
oh man, it's 3 a.m. and Sierra's posting about her conspiracy theory that World War One and World War Two are the same war that's just split <laughs> up because America took a five-minute breather in between them again, which is true. I mean, yeah, it makes sense. I never thought that, but now that you've said it, even thinking about this comic, I'm like, oh, especially given the way Hans is reacting to the World War One veteran, I'm like, oh my God, that really does make sense. So I'm in. I'm in on your conspiracy theories. You could, yeah. you know what? You could just send them directly to me. I will affirm cool. all of them and I will be into it. Um, all my Excellent. friends know that I am a supporter. <laughs> They're like, is this a bad idea? I'm like, it sounds like a good one to me. Like, <laughs> I don't, is it though? And I'm like, do it, do it. <laughs> yeah, I like, I started making this comic and I was like, this is a World War II comic. And then the more I'm working on it, the more I'm like, this is a World War One comic and everything is World War One. One, actually we're all just living in the giant shadow of world war one and the, the the capitalists want you to think that world war ii is the big war that we won and that's the end of it but it's not true it's, 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 I, yeah i have a lot of thoughts <laughs> it's not true it's I not it. true it's, I love it. it's, it's all the same i'm just <laughs> doing the you, you can't see me but i'm doing the pepe sylvia conspiracy wall right now <laughs> I see the web. Um, I love it. You know, <laughs> coming back to Hans Vogel is dead. You know, it's such a decidedly anti-fascist comic. Um, you know, and at the same time, you've mentioned that uh, the main, the protagonist is a Nazi. And I think that that could feel antithetical to some people. But the way you use it is to interrogate really how someone can unlearn fascism without getting absolved. There is no sense of a true redemption arc because he knows what he's done is unforgivable by the end of volume one. He's he's come to terms with that. And he's come to terms with the fact that any claim that he would make or that is a very common Nazi defense of I was just doing my job, they're, they're disingenuous. And I'm curious for you, what is it you're saying about the commonness of fascism and our responsibility to mm, resist it as, as individual people? It, like... Yeah, I mean, I've spent a lot of time in this comic sweating over the decision uh, to make Hans a, a, a Nazi. I mean, he's he's he pays his party dues. He's a party member. He's got medals. He is like the the you know the best and brightest and of of the Nazi bombers. You know, he's a yeah, he's a a, a fighter pilot. And there's a, there's a few reasons for that. Number one of which being. Um, the, the more that you like read into the Nazis and their organization, the more you realize that they like there are there's just a lot of idiots and mean spirited people and bullies and anyone who has any kind of misguided um, view of them as efficient or as darkly masterful or cunning uh, has has bought into the propaganda because. Um, World War II was just a lot of continuous fucking up on on a, a lot of sides, um, to be honest. But uh, just a lot of people falling flat on their ass um, over and over again. And I think that like building this myth of like the evil genius Nazi is not good. <laughs> like you don't have to respect them for being good fighters or anything. 
There, are, there's no such thing as a good German. There are people who were put in the this, the position to make a decision about whether or not they were going to support this evil regime, mm-hmm. and for whatever reasons, uh, they either supported it or they didn't. Mm-hmm. And Hans supports it because it's the easy way for him, and yep. because he doesn't want to uh, make things hard. He wants to keep his head down and uh, stay out of out of doing anything that is that seems hard or scary um and when you're born in 1918 in germany that really puts you on a very specific path doesn't it yep um and the the thing about you know making the easy call is that it's it's (laughs) sometimes uh, i would argue perhaps rarely the right thing to do and that you end up paying for it in in other ways um Hans may not be a target of the state, but he is miserable for his whole life. And his whole life ends at age 22. Um, Mm -hmm. He is a very young man when he dies. um, And he dies in essentially RAF-assisted suicide. Uh, Mm -hmm. He is overdosing on drugs. He is taking, he's, he's drinking, he's not sleeping. He is trying desperately to sort of keep himself himself as the walls are closing in around him and as the state finds him more and more useful a lot of avenues of ways that he can be himself are closing off to him like Mm -hmm. and this isn't to excuse like oh look he has his life is hard and that's why he's a nazi like his life is hard because he is a nazi exactly being a fascist does not make your life better under fascism Mm -hmm. (laughs) it is bad for everyone Mm -hmm. um and that, it's just that like, you drank the Kool-Aid that said, you know, this is going to be good for you. It's the glory of Germany. It's the glory of doing right by your people. And it's like, how many regimes tell that story and, and sell it to young people and then waste their bodies in killing fields or in planes or, you know, what have you? And it's it's a really sadly common thing throughout history, really. Yeah. I mean, it's someone is benefiting from Mm -hmm. very directly from Hans um, turning to paste in his cockpit, as Mm -hmm. his friend Uli puts it. Um, But yeah, there's there's this sort of like myth of the Knights of the Skies that like the fighter pilots were somehow above all of the the shit that everyone is doing. Um, And and part of my very personal, very bitter um, (laughs) thing of writing Hans into this book is that he he absolutely knew what was happening. He like the Luftwaffe was very complicit in war crimes. Yes, Um, yes. And he, like, he decides that he's, you know, I do not see it closing his eyes, but he, he, he sees things. He knows he's not, he's not stupid. Uh, I mean, he's stupid in the sense that he's like a 22 year old fail son, man child, but like, (laughs) he's not. There's not the, um, he, he kind of, there's this sort of grappling that happens in volume one where he doesn't quite know he's dead but he knows he's not where he should be and he's kind of trying to piece it together i'm not spoiling anything folks it the back cover copy says he's dead that's where his journey begins he is dead um and so it is the title yeah (laughs) right another great points here he's dead but don't be mad at me (laughs) i yeah i very much named called it that because i didn't want people to be like oh, is this a metaphor? Is he asleep? Is he unconscious? Is he having a bad trip? And it's like, okay, well, he does all of those things, but he's very much dead. <laughs> no, this he's is dead. very he's much, dead, dead. he died. He is. <laughs> okay. 
Yeah, and I no, think he's dead for real. <laughs> he spends part of his like afterlife being like, well, you know, like I'm a soldier. They'll just, you know, they'll we'll do like the war thing, and then he has to, he faces it in himself, and he has this moment where he's like, I did know what they were doing. Like, I'm responsible for this. I don't remember exactly how he phrases it, but that's the moment I took away from it. I think it's a small moment with um, Reinica, my Reine- baby girl, oh, my beautiful daughter. Who doesn't love Reinica? People who are She's- wrong. She's so good. She is so um, good. And she, yeah. you know, kind of, I think it's, her, you know, I, here's my theory. I think it's her her very presence and her, you know, she's injured, she needs help. And that brings out something in him that kind, that makes him face the, the, the cruelties and the evils he has at the very least been complicit in and at the worst been very active in enacting. And I think that that's why it works to have a Nazi protagonist because you are nailing him to the things he has done. And there isn't a way out. There isn't a redemption arc. It doesn't matter what he does. He is still going to have been the person who did that. Now he gets to choose in his afterlife who he wants to be here. And what that yeah. will mean. And I, I remember there's this moment where he says, someone's like, don't go fight that guy. You'll die. And he's like, well, at least that death would mean something. My last one. Meant yeah. Nothing. And that is, I don't know. It's very beautiful and heartbreaking because, again, there is no absolving what he's done. There is no redemption. There is no forgiveness. And that is... I don't know. There are things we in life we cannot undo. And I think sometimes in fantasy and sci-fi, we want to sort of give people an out, you know, of like, oh, they did this horrible thing. You know, I think about this all the time with Buffy, where it's like, Spike murdered all these people. Angel murdered all these people. But then they got a soul. You know, it's okay. Yeah. And I'm like, fuck you. It is not okay. It doesn't erase the past. And that's what I think is so good about Spike's journey back to his soul, too, is He's like, I'm still a monster. And now I have a, I can feel that I'm a monster. And, you know, we spend so much more time in that. So I think it's just, yeah, really, I, oh, please, please. Oh, yeah. No, it's just that I, I think that like people have this, it's very easy to have the sense of like, again, the easy way uh, to think of people as good or bad mm-hmm. um, and not as people as just people who are doing things that are good or bad. And Hans is, is a guy for whom bad things have been very easy. Mm-hmm. Or easier than than in other societies and other time periods, um, and now he has a chance where they are. He is not necessarily like put in that position, and a lot of it, it you know, if Hans were born in like 1992, he would be a much different person. Um, and like part of the thing that I'm like trying to get across is, with this is that like you don't need somebody to descend from on high to tell you that your your sins have been forgiven and that you are absolved of any wrong you are good trademark copyright Mm -hmm. capital g um you just like you have to become a good person by doing good things and continuing to make the good choices even if they are hard even if they are at your expense um in the way that you can and the the reason that i that i like reinica and hans as a as a duo um sort of is that Reinica doesn't know the stuff that Hans has done. Mm-hmm. Um, she knows that he's like kind of a weirdo, but like as far as she knows, he's just some guy who smells weird who helped her out in the woods one time. Yeah. Um, and she sort of latches onto him as like a, an older brother figure. Um, and he's like, well, okay, <laughs> there's some things that you should maybe know about me. But she's also 12 mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> and like a child. So they're just they're just sort of stumbling through this world that neither of them are super familiar with for various reasons um trying to to do better 
And that's that's the comic, baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the end. Yeah. Have a good day, everybody. Except there's a Valkyrie who's hot. So oh, I'm so glad we're gonna, we're gonna have to yeah. talk about her. I have she's on my list. Don't you worry. We are not getting out of here without Brunhilde. Um, okay, good. Yeah, for sure. You know, I I'm really sitting with what you said because I think it's just it's such an ambitious story to tell. It it is. You're right. You have to thread this needle carefully because, especially at this moment in time, it's unfortunately a very timely book given the the near worldwide rise of it fascism. Is a weird, weird time to be writing about Nazis. Yeah, and, and you know, I'm curious. I think we can learn from this this book about how to identify fascism and how to resist it. I think it's a little bit clear when it's like, oh, Nazi. Capital N. We we're, yeah. we're looking back from a place of a history, right? We weren't living. We're you and me. We're not living through what it was like to feel that rise. And people, lots of people have written about it at length. Lots of people who were Jewish. Lots of people who were queer. All those things who have been completely, you know, destroyed in many ways by by the Nazi regime. If you haven't read anything by the philosopher Walter Benjamin. Um, you or the audience listening, please read Walter Benjamin because his essays changed my life. Um, he was a Jewish philosopher living in the 10s and 20s in Germany. Um, and when World War II started, he started to flee the country and killed himself before he could make it out. Um, and it is very tragic story, but his writing on fascism, the nature of man watching um, all of this happen in his in his home country uh, is devastating and will change your life. Um, mm. Yeah. I mean, there are lots of people who are much smarter than me writing about fascism. There are people who are have much more of a like hands-on approach uh, <laughs> who had experience with the the OGs, so to speak. Um, who wrote about it in ways that I am, you know, sitting in the back copying furiously. Uh, but like, I am, I'm certainly not saying claiming to be the next Umberto Eco. Uh, so like read Umberto Eco though. He's great. Um, but like, I, I do think that the more people who read about it in general or who are talking about it, I would be thrilled if somebody told me that they picked up, you know, or fascism because of Hans Vogel, or if they picked up, uh, Primo Levi because of Hans Vogel, or if they picked up, you know, any one of the other, I would say, better books about fascism, because like Hans Vogel is, I I am greatly enjoying it, um, but I, I don't think that it's going to save the world. <laughs> it's a lot of pressure to put on a comic, <laughs> certainly. Um, but I, I do think that like, I can do something. <laughs> and I know a lot about, uh, I've I've been doing a lot of reading about Nazis, and that's it's not doing anyone good for me to just have read about Nazis and not do anything about it. You know, like if they're not wearing jack boots and armbands, there are other ways to recognize them exactly. and their talking points. And sometimes you just see the wildest things that people post Ooh. online and you're like, wow, I, that's what it looks like in English. Interesting. Okay. Interesting. And then you see like in the, in their, uh, in their fucking username, there's two lightning bolts, and you're like, oh, right, got it. Yes, yeah, so, sometimes they do just straight up wear the, uh, the armband. <laughs> you're <laughs> like, uh, but you know, I will say, I think I've had to really learn about dog whistles because I think 
there was this sort of sense, or there's been this sort of sense, I would say, you know, I'm going to say some years, but you're the historian. You'll be like, no, it's this many years. And I'm like, yes. Um, you know, <laughs> I'm going to say last 20, 30, maybe 40 years, let's say, there's been this sort of sense of like, oh, Nazis are just like a joke. Like Nazis are just like this group that they have such out of the world opinions. They don't like, we're not going to listen to them. They're not a threat. If they're going to, you know, they get to have their free speech because we all get to have our free speech. And that is, I think, so it's made it where we've forgotten a lot of the things that we, or maybe we didn't pass down or we're not intentional about teaching about dog whistles, about, you know, a Nazi wants to debate with you, not because they're, they're, they have any interest in what you're saying or because they believe their views are good. A white supremacist isn't debating with you because they think they can convince you. Half mm -hmm. the time, or this, this is what I'm reading, so you'll have to tell me if I'm off base here, but what I've read is that so often what they're trying to do is make you have an absurd conversation with them. They're laughing. Mm -hmm. They're laughing because there is no logic. They don't have a reason to justify what they believe. They don't fucking care, but they can twist you in knots, getting you to try and disprove it. Exactly. They're not talking to you. They're talking to their audience behind you. And they're snickering, you know, like mm -hmm. they're having a fun little joke. Some of them and some people who are being spoken to are like, that speaks to my pain. And it's like, mm -hmm. that is, it's just, it's really hard because I think as much as we think we know what white supremacy, what Nazism looks like, that is one face of it. And that's what I would, that's exactly why Hans Vogel is dead rules. Because you are making us stand alongside a Nazi who is trying to make sense of his life. And we have to constantly hold in our minds. Hans is like kind of, interesting as a character. There are these moments where he's very sweet. When he helps Reinecke, it makes us feel differently about him. When he, the different choices he makes at different points, he decides he's going to go fight the big bad. You know, he, he does these things that make us go, wow. But at the end of the day, he is still the person who killed 98 people as a fighter pilot, who was out to bomb London, who, you know, is <laughs> a glorious hero of the Third Reich. Like, those are really bad fucking things, you know? Yeah, and like, yeah. We have to hold those both. And what I think that makes us do that is so valuable, and I'm not putting it on your comic to change the world, but I think it can be <laughs> an entree point to really interrogating ourselves is who, especially as white people, especially yeah. as white people, yeah. where does white supremacy live in me? Yeah. Why do I think I could never make those choices? And you say, had you been born in a different time, you might have. You might have. Yeah. You might have been yeah. the collaborator, not the, the resistor. You might have been the Nazi. Because if you choose the easy path, then you would have, you might end up there. And I think that so often we all sit around and look at each other and go, well, it would never happen to me. These guys were just fools. These guys are just evil in like a sort of capital E way. We're not debating if Hans Vogel is evil or complicit in evil acts, but like yeah. <laughs> it goes back to that binary you're talking about of good versus evil. And that's what I think Hans Vogel is dead gives us that I, I am really grateful for. Because I was a little bit suspect, Sierra. I'm not going to lie yeah. to you. I was like, I'm hanging out with a Nazi? I don't know about all yeah. that. It's un it's uncomfortable. It it's is uncomfortable, uncomfortable. To, to watch him. I I call him my fail son uh, for <laughs> for a number of reasons. But like, it's uncomfortable to to watch him do things that are good when you know that he's done a lot of things that are bad. And it's uncomfortable to watch him do things that are. We have uh, continuous flashback interchapters where we we see him in his life, um, which I'm very excited about. Things that are that are coming up um, and and the things that 
we see him do, that we see him see being done, um, that he doesn't necessarily participate in, but doesn't necessarily stop mm. either. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like, yeah, that's he, he's an uncomfortable character in in many ways, including his crippling anxiety. But like, that's that's part of it. You're, I'm I'm feeling good because you're feeling all the things that I was hoping. Yeah, um, well, it should make us feel uneasy, feel. right? It should make us feel yeah. uneasy. It should make us question. You know what? What would I be complicit in? And in all, you know, I I have not done nearly as much studying as you have, but I was a philosophy and religion major, and we. Um, we had, I did a course that was called um, What is Evil? And a lot mm-hmm. of our studies, because we're white people, uh, centered on World War II. And yeah. so we talked, you know, I read Victor Frankl, Frankl Primo mm-hmm. Levi, um, some other folks who we are all a little bit more suspect of today um, that I won't name. Um, and, you know, I watched the Shoah documentary. I All these things that just really... We have such a, as Americans, we have, as you said, such a narrow conception of what World War II was. We were the good guys. We came in and we took care of this. It was us. We saved everything. It's like, well, no, the Russian, what are you, what are you even talking about? That's not even, that's so ahistorical, but it's, it's, oh, oh, this is a good segue, but it's a part of the sort of (laughs) how we create an American identity, right? How much time do we spend in our, our school system in K-12 learning about World War II versus any other conflict. Half of mm. our schools stopped teaching kids history at World War II. It's like, yeah. are you fucking kidding me? Like, we just keep repeating the same mistakes and we won't tell our youth the truth. And this is the thing that, oh my God, this is so topical. Uh, this is the thing that, <laughs> that, that people don't talk about is when they're passing these laws where they're like, we don't want white kids to feel guilty. We don't want white kids to feel bad. It's like, bitch, <sighs> you are projecting. Because you know yeah. what white kids feel? When they find out the truth, they feel embarrassed. That's how this, these generations, I would say millennials and Gen Z, and I cannot imagine what Gen Alpha is going to feel. They, yeah. we, we felt in, we go to college, we get, you know, we go to a camp where we learn this thing. We do whatever. We make friends with someone who's different from us. They show us a new side of the lens as white. I'm talking about specifically white kids. And suddenly mm-hmm. we have to confront this huge history of racism, abuse, colonization, just horrible, horrible actions of a nation. And, and we feel embarrassed that we didn't know sooner. We feel hurt that we were complicit in hurting other people by keeping up that um, pro-America lens. Like I used to wear shirts that said USA on them. You know what I mean? Like I was eight, (laughs) I was 10. I didn't know what I was wearing, but it was what everybody was into. I mean, especially after 9-11, right? There was so much Americana, so much American pride. And it's like, but then why don't we ever ask the question about why? Why don't we ask these questions? And it's like, right, because you feel bad older generations. Like you feel, when you learn about these things, you feel guilty. It's like, yeah, we know because you are guilty. Like, I'm sorry. I'm not personally responsible for those things. Am I personally responsible for the racism that I've let slide in my life or that I've been actively complicit in? Fuck yeah, I am. I'm, I'm responsible for that white supremacy too. I'm responsible for those things. But I'm, I don't feel guilty the way that I hear older generations feel guilty. I feel sad. I feel embarrassed. And I feel committed to changing it. And that's why they keep kids fucking undereducated is because if they don't ever know, they can't change anything. 
Exactly. Yeah. If you if you don't know what the situation is, there isn't anything you can do to move forward from it. And that I think is a huge part of it. Um, and that's like, it's easy to get caught up in the emotional weight of everything that's been done because there's been a lot of shit that has been done to people that is crushing and continues to crush moving forward. But you can't like... You can't move forward if you're stuck in it. And when I say if you're stuck in it, I don't mean in the sense of, wow, if you're teaching people about slavery, then that's perpetuating it moving forward. Absolutely not. You mean getting stuck in your feelings about it. Exactly. Exactly. It's like sometimes we can be so black and white with everything, really. So we're like, oh, either feelings or no feelings. And I think of it as like your feelings are an entry point to your own personal journey around these things. The facts are the fucking facts. You don't have to like them. Yeah. You don't have to agree yeah. with them. But there has been genocide on this land. You are living on stolen land on, on Turtle Island. If you are a white person, you are living on stolen land, land that your people stole, our people stole it. That's a fact. <laughs> like, yeah. we, don't have to, yeah. we don't have to beat around the bush. What's the path forward? I mean, I have some thoughts. I think indigenous people, black people have a lot of interesting thoughts. Mm, perhaps we should listen. What a concept. And perhaps, I think yeah. there's just, mm. there's so much unwillingness to find that new path forward because it, it requires admitting guilt it to, for some people. Well, and also it, it requires letting go of the reins. Yeah. Yes, exactly. You it's, don't get to decide. It's about power and fear <laughs> that other people are going to treat you the same way that you have treated them like that is a very real and visceral fear um and like again the the more that you that you read about like fascists the the more that fear crops up and resentment and like one of one of the things that um i i thought was very interesting that i don't think is talked about a lot is sort of like propaganda that the Nazis were using when they invaded Poland. Mm. One of the things that they specifically mentioned was the Battle of Grunwald, which took place during the Crusades. Okay. <laughs> like, there was another Battle of Grunwald that took place during World War One, but the one that the Nazis were specifically calling upon during the invasion of Poland was the one during the Crusades. Mm. And like, yeah, we're reaching, there's not a lot of people in, you know, 19... 19- 39 that are like god you know the battle of grunwald that's been weighing heavily on my heart i think often about the loss of the teutonic knights to the the baltic pagans during that time like no people who are actually interested in the historicity of that event um were probably all in universities (laughs) having passionate (laughs) arguments about like very nerd things um but it was this the the feeling that they were trying to evoke it was this feeling of of loss and of resentment and of an an old grudge that had to be resolved that, that they were trying to stir up in people and they were willing to reach as far back as necessary to mm-hmm. invent this past that they wanted people to be riled up about um yeah and invent this identity right like this is something you yeah. talked about in an interview with but but why though um you talked yeah. about the history of fairy tales specifically the grim fairy tales and how they were gathered and curated to present a unifying german identity Uh, In many ways, (laughs) that German identity pairs perfectly with a story about the Nazis, right? Because the Nazis were committed to doing something similar. There is a common German identity, a German first nationalist identity. And I'm curious what what you think when you brought the two together, um, which you've, you've done so cleverly. I'm curious what you think 
pairing them heightens in our experience of reading the book. So I can't, I cannot claim uh, to be the first person to do that. I am, I am following in the footsteps of much greater giants. Um, as part of what I loved about, uh, pushes up my glasses nerdily, <laughs> uh, post, post-war German surrealist fiction is that you can't throw a rock without hitting three different fairy tales. Because mm-hmm. when you have built up your national identity around fairy tales uh, and then your, your German national identity goes and murders millions of people and starts, you know, a, another bloody war on the heels of a first bloody war, then, uh, yeah, your, your fairy tales are tied up in the middle there. They cannot escape it. You mm-hmm. cannot untangle those things. And so you get um, Kabat, which is by Alfred Poisler, uh, which the English title is The Satanic Mill, which I think is a bit of a spoiler. Um, and you get like The Tin Drum by Günter Grass. Actually, most things that Günter Grass wrote. You get like <laughs> Payback by Gert Leidig. You get these books that are about the horrors of war that are told through the perspective of fairy tales either outright or in sort of a fairy tale like language and surrealism um people were doing that like (sighs) as soon as the war was over and they had enough paper to write pretty much Mm. uh and that was one of the things that that fascinated me was like you have these existing stories and you're 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 muddling them with real life stories um one of one of the things that kind of ruined me as a child when I was first learning German is the word for history and the word for story are the same Geschichte (laughs) and and that sort of is like formative memory unlocked for the rest of my life um and and that's sort of the tradition that I'm following with Hans Vogel is dead is this idea that like the stories that made us um <laughs> the stories that made us threat you know <laughs> like like they made us and now look at us um mm-hmm. what is that like what are what are they capable of what are we capable of where where do they play in all of this yeah yeah, yeah. and there's this piece of like uh you're like i, I love li- i love language so i'm like ooh, 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 ooh. yeah story, I, I do piece it's like there's something there about the stories make us and then we make a fictional history through the lens of those stories. And that's that's kind of what I wanted what I'm I'm getting at. And so it's cool knowing it's a whole surrealist German <laughs> literature. I love it. Very happy to hear that. Um I'm not familiar with it. So it was really cool to hear you talk about that. And I'm I'm curious, you know, maybe the another way to think about the question is then what is that pairing that spoke to you specifically? Um I've always been fascinated by history as a narrative. Mm. Um, especially when like you, you have history, what, what is history even, man? (laughs) Like you get this, this intersection of like the stories that we tell ourselves, the story that are the official version, the story that are unofficial versions that have been passed down. You have family histories, you have living memory, you have, you know, all of these things you have, there are, there are individual stories that counteract the official narrative all the time. I'm sure that at some point, you know, in, in the war, there were a German, and a Jewish person were friends, but that doesn't like that personal story doesn't counteract the greater story of what happened in World War II. Like this is all of these things are so messy and complicated and mm. coming together in in weird ways. And like when those lines start blurring, that's where I find it the most interesting. When you have yeah. things like 
like the Pied Piper of Hamlin is a historic event. We have hard dates for that because we have letters between different bishops and parishes going, what the hell? These kids are missing. And the only thing that people are saying about it is a guy with a flute took them away. What does that mean? Where are we with this? Or like mm. Dr. Faustus was a real person. We have letters that were written to him that like back and forth between the local bishop. Again, being like, yeah, there's this guy. His name is Dr. Faustus. I don't know where he got his medical degree or whatever, <laughs> but he's saying that he has a demon. Like there's there's all sorts of like weird things in history. And like one of the things that I love about German folktales is that um, we, we all know like the, the big famous Grimm stories, we know Snow White and, and uh, Rumpelstiltskin and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. all of the, the, the heavy hitters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hansel and Gretel, yeah. Um, but like the ones that I really like are the ones that don't have a lot of sort of outside appeal because they are so localized mm. that they don't like carry. And a lot of them are just like, hey, my cousin went to the old castle on the hill the other weekend and there was a full moon and there were a bunch of ghosts who were bowling and they were bowling with gold pins. It was crazy. (laughs) Anyway, my cousin (laughs) died three days later because he was so scared from those ghosts. And that's it. (laughs) The end. The end. Like a lot of these don't have like real morality lessons or Mm -hmm. if they do, they're very conflicting. Yes. Um, Yes. There's, there's a lot of stories about like milkmaids who are staying with their flocks over the winter and ghosts try to come in. And sometimes if you let the ghost in and feed them, then that's a good thing. And sometimes if you let the ghost in and you feed them, that's a bad thing. (laughs) And like, it's so, it's so messy and it's so weird and it's so wacky. And that's what I love about history is that there's always some, like people have always been total weirdos and freaks. Totally. And I love that. I love looking into the past and finding some weirdo and freak who died 200 years before I was ever considered and like going, yeah. I have also had frustrating moments in my life, Franz Kafka. I have also written in my journal, today sucked, I went back to bed. I get it. I understand. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's I think that's beautiful. There's a lot of terrible stuff in history, but there's a lot of um, really weird stuff in history. And that's uh, that's what I really like. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I think that there's there's a lot more overlap in history and, and fairy tales um, than anyone I think really thinks about <laughs> anyway. Uh, I just kind of wanted to push it along a little bit, you know? (laughs) I love it. And And I think it's such a fun way to do so. Hey, everybody. Earlier today, I made myself a sandwich and I thought to myself, if I could rate and review this sandwich, I would give it five stars. And I would say... This sandwich is so incredible. It was the best sandwich I've had literally in days. And it was everything I wanted it to be. And that would be a positive review. That would help me see what audience responses were to my sandwich. And, you know, it would just be really a helpful system. I wonder if there's another situation where rating and reviewing would come in handy. Oh, huh. Oh, my God. No, you could rate and review this podcast and then that helps us find our audience and it helps us find whatever we've lost it helps us find what we've lost helps us find our socks (laughs) our keys our cell phone people don't talk about it enough when you rate and review it really changes someone's life (laughs) yeah it's gonna change my life that's for sure 
And we like to read the reviews, you know, the ones that are positive, that say soothing and nice things. <laughs> five stars. We'll give you five stars as a listener. You give us five stars as a podcast. Five sandwiches. <laughs> this podcast, let's face it, is five delicious sandwiches. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. We can't end today without talking about the art. Without talking about the friggin' art! Uh, no, 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 no. Ah, we have to do it! Um, I, oh my god, I don't even, I honestly, besides surrealist and maybe dark fantasy, maybe like some body horror, like I don't really know how to describe it. It's, you know, it's folklore, it's history, it's fantasy <laughs> it's a body horror like i said and and i think that's what makes it so like ooh no this is maybe this is clever we'll see it's kind of like what we're talking about is it's marrying a lot of different things together in a very ambitious way and and a way that pays off and you know by nature of doing it as a webcomic, you you couldn't have possibly known if it would all click and pay off, but it really has. And so I'd love to hear a little bit about the character design. Um, we, you know, we've talked about Reinica and, and Hans a little bit, and we can definitely talk about them again. But the person who really like character design wise, like knocked my socks off was Brunhilde and her steed. And, uh, you know, she shows up at the, as this Valkyrie and Hans is like, oh, you here to take my soul? And she's like, ah! <laughs> Already <one>. did. <laughs> Bitch. <laughs> yeah, Brynhildr was is my favorite. I love her. So I like it took me like three years to get to the point in the comic where I introduced her. And honestly, those three years I just had like a picture of Brynhildr hanging above my desk that I would touch when I needed strength. <laughs> um I love her so much. I like Again, weird things that High School Sierra got like <sighs> weirdly obsessed with was the Nibelungen lead. Um, and not the Wagner opera, which is fine, heavy sigh. Wagner can meet me in the pit. That guy can fight me. <laughs> um, but the the original mythos is so out there and wacky and weird and fun. And uh, there's like a gajillion self-insert OCs that like various medieval bards have put in over the centuries of the story being told. Um Swiss hero Dietrich von Baron makes an inexplicable appearance. Attila the Hun shows up at the end for a cameo as a wife guy. We love that for him. I love Attila the Hun. Okay. Attila I'm, the Hun, wife guy. I, I, yeah, I love the fact that he gets to be a wife guy and murder a lot of people at the end of the, the story, which Wagner cuts out because he is a wuss and a coward. 
meet me in the pit. Anyway, um, <laughs> yeah, character design. Uh, I like Brynhildr was always like the coolest one in the Nibelungen lead, and I didn't like that she kills herself. Spoiler alert for a two thousand year old story. Truly, truly. <laughs> If you haven't read the Nibelungen lead, um, just read it and know that Tolkien stole everything. Uh, he took everything. But <laughs> but that and like Irish yeah. myth, he was like, ha Yeah, he was the like, I, can, what? <laughs> I respect Tolkien because I too go digging around in folklore oh, and like, this stuff is all sure. free. For <laughs> sure. I'm like, I, I can just take it. Scene. Hmm, I'm going to Google a yeah. book of Irish legends and see if I like one. <laughs> It's real and it's legitimate. I I support that. But um, yeah, I for Brynhildr, I actually spent a lot of time digging around in like very old, uh, like Norse, old Germanic armor. Um, she has she has some like old school leather uh, plating going on, long skirts. I didn't want to give her the winged helmet because the the problem with having characters that are from like very famous. Um, fairy tales stories whatever is that like it's very easy to just go oh everyone will know who this is if i give them the iconic piece of armor whatever that they always wear uh so i I did want to avoid that i actually recently had to do a character design for a character who shows up in uh this current chapter that i'm working on um and he like almost entirely shows up naked or semi-nude in his classical literature so that was fun like i'm just gonna make up clothes for this guy (laughs) it's fine i try to remain as like where appropriate i try to remain as historically accurate as i can um hans and his buddies were pretty easy to design because i just they have uniforms and i can Mm -hmm. just take take those uniforms and he just has the uniform but like when they're in the fairy tale world um that's when i have a little bit more room to to play around um i love folk costumes i am aware of the complicated history of tracht which is like german folk costumes specifically uh but i i love it i love dirndls and lederhosen and all of that and i know that lederhosen are a joke but People need to come around and accept that Lederhosen are cool. And <laughs> Get on board. I, yeah, they're you can hike in them. They're very practical. They're okay? not just for Oktoberfest anymore. They're not just for Oktoberfest anymore. <laughs> you can be a Lederhosen lover, not a Lederhosen hater. I'm a Lederhosen <laughs> appreciator myself. Um, Hans does not get Lederhosen. He has just gotten a costume change. And I deeply considered giving him Lederhosen. But he doesn't deserve later hosen. No. He hasn't worked up to that. He hasn't. He has he has cropped pants though. He okay. has little, okay. little capris. <laughs> he would look great. He's a nerd. He, he is a nerd. He really is a nerd. <laughs> he is. He is a little nerd. I was I was trying to give him like the mangy look of someone who's hasn't eaten properly for like two years. Hopefully that comes through. The mm-hmm. bags under his eyes are an integral. That's mm-hmm. the best part of his character design, in my opinion. Well, and his expressions. He's just always fucking shocked. You know what I mean? He's just always like, what? <laughs> and you're like, he, I don't know, man. He, he's so stressed all of the time. I drew him smiling in a panel and it just didn't look like him. Like, and then no. I realized that it was because he was smiling. And I was like, oh, 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. He's having a bad would be, time. Even if like something good happened, he'd be shocked by it. You know, just yeah. Shocked he, to be fair, something good happening to him is quite shocking. <laughs> <laughs> Truth. Okay, that's real. That's real. You yeah. Know, thinking about the art, one of the things that really jumped out at me in your style too is the lettering. Um, it's very distinctive and it creates an atmosphere for the graphic novel. You know, it, and it, there's so many styles of lettering. So there's, you know, there's in the bubbles, there's in the bubbles with like a little character icon. So we know who's talking. There's, you know, people speaking over each other. So bubbles are layered over each other. Then there's sort of, I guess we'd call them, you know, Hans's sort of internal narrative shows up sometimes in like scratchy letters that are red and sort of foreboding and, you know, and different characters have different letter styles. And I'm, I'm curious for you how the lettering came together. Um, I'm such a nerd for lettering. It's like one of my favorite aspects <laughs> of comics. And so I just want to hear everything. Oh, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> um, <laughs> my lettering journey uh, is truly been a journey. I started the comic with a font. Um, mm -hmm. When I, if you go back in the, uh, in the archives of the original site, I have left the original pages up that have the original font. It is a serif font, which I was using for the, <laughs> like most of the time. And uh, the consensus, once I started engaging with more people in the comics community was that um, everyone hated it. <laughs> people, people <laughs> were not shy about telling me that they hated it. Uh, and I was like, whatever fuck them. I can do what I want. And I'm, I'm living, but they're not paying me. So why should I care? Uh, and then I got picked up by Cast Iron, the publisher that I had before Dark Horse. And the editor was like, okay, we hate the lettering. And I was like, okay, well, you guys are paying me. So you can say that. I'll take the note. <laughs> it's noted. So I was like, I, a, a, a very wise cartoonist, Mel Gilman told me once that your handwriting is always going to look the best with your art. Um, and son of a bitch, they were right. Because <laughs> uh, I, I did like an eight-page uh, eight like test sample with my handwriting. Uh, and it's actually the, the sequence where Brynhildr is yelling at Hans. Mm. Um, and I was like, oh my God, I can change the size of the letters. I can have Hans like trail off awkwardly. Oh, yeah, yeah. I can have like, I can do all these sort of fun, expressive things that I couldn't do with a font. Oh my God, I'm going to have to go back and reletter 300 pages, Ooh. aren't I? So uh, <laughs> then I went back and reletter 300 pages, which was fun. <laughs> Did you did you change any of the dialogue as you went? Did you did you change anything? Yes, mm. I did change things. Um, not not super much. Just there were some things that that had been bothering me. Um, I try not to let things like uh, specific word choice bother me too much because I am again I'm obsessive about language and I am sort of keeping to the rule that uh, this entire comic is in translation. Mm. Um, all the characters are speaking German unless there is like a specific note about they're not speaking German. Uh, so to some extent, you know, phrasing is loose, um, mm -hmm. but I, I do try to keep things sort of period appropriate. Mm -hmm. I don't like the word okay. I've, <laughs> I cannot, I, I mean, okay is a fine word. Uh, I enjoy using it in, in real life, but I cannot use it in Hans Vogel. I've just, I've accepted it. It's weird. Uh, it's too American if any of the characters said, okay, in the comic, I, that would bother me for, for a very long time. Um, 
So uh, Hans never says okay. There, there are a few rules that I have about dialogue. Is it only okay, or is there? Yeah, I was just going to ask. Is there other? Are there other no fly words? There are other words. Um, I try to to keep things sort. Of, I try to keep sort of like blatant Americanisms mm-hmm. out of. Mm-hmm. Cool is another one <laughs> that I try to avoid. Um, the other one is that Hans can't swear. Mm. He doesn't swear. He's he is a, a baby boy. Um, Reinecke can swear. She swears. <laughs> um, Brynhildr swears, but Hans can't. He he does hard drugs and makes bad political decisions. But <laughs> and listen, I think we all have met someone like that who, like, you're yeah. like you're literally the worst person I've ever met, but you don't swear. Like, I'm so confused. <laughs> His mom would cuff him if he said damn. So yeah. so he's not going to do it. He's not going to do it. Yeah. his It's not what his adopted grandma would want for him. And that's really what he's working for. But um, there may come a point later in the, you know, I try to keep things open. There may come a point later in the comic where he breaks his rule and he swears. And that should be a big, it'll be meaningful. A big character yes. step forward. Yeah. Yes. Well, you know, another thing I was thinking about with the art sort of, not to move us along too much, but I was just flipping through the comic and now my brain's like, must ask, um, <laughs> is, you know, going from a web comic to, let's say, a compiled graphic novel, one of the things that stood out to me is there are panels, there are, you know, there, but but there's not white space, really. There's a couple places where there's white space, but predominantly, instead of the panels being surrounded by white space, they're they're surrounded by colors that evoke the mood of the moment or maybe they suggest perhaps the sort of fecundity and darkness of the forest or I, you know i think there's probably lots of different ways to describe that i'm, I'm curious fecundity. what that process was like with like getting to put it with the panels moving them from you know the screen to putting them on a page together and having that sort of backdrop. Was it important to you to not have white space? Was your publisher on board with that? Because that's more ink, and I know that could be testy some with yeah. some publishers. Um, what was that process like? Um, so I've I've printed Hans Vogel three times. Mm. Uh, when I first finished the comic, I did a print run of fifty for myself um, and and for friends. And I sold out of those. And then um, for Cast Iron and now for for my my equine overlords at Dark Horse. Um, and I've had to reformat the comic each time. <laughs> Completely page by page. Uh, the thing about a, a web comic is that you can truly have any page size you want. Mm-hmm. Um, and I discovered as I was sort of getting it ready to print the first time that for some reason there were like five random pages in the first chapter that are a different size and mm. dimension than all the other pages, mm. uh, which was very cool and fun of 2015 me. <laughs> um, and like cast iron had their own template, which I had to adjust to. And then dark horse had their own template that I had to adjust to. Uh, and if, if anyone had any problems about me not having the white space, they, they certainly didn't, didn't bring it up to me at any point, um, which is great. Cause I don't like the dark, the white space. <laughs> it bothers well, and I me. Think, I think it, um, there, there's another comic. Uh, we, we had a great opportunity to talk to Stan Stanley about her comic, um, Hazards of Love. And that was another comic where it was a web comic. And then when it was compiled also, there's, I mean, I don't know if there's any white space in, in, uh, Hazards of Love. And it just, is also, you know what, I'm going to make a couple other connections. They're both set in like really dank forests. And so that makes a lot of sense to me that you need to really communicate that mood of you're not, there's no way out. You are in this and you can't just pop off the page or, you know, not that that's 
what every comic is communicating, but I think these really are communicating. You are trapped. And I think that that really comes through when you don't look at, like, even I can see the land, the lines of the panels. You know what I mean? Like, I, they're communicating mm-hmm. as panels, but they're not quite the same as maybe a superhero comic or um, a sort of traditional surrounded by white space comic of any kind. Um, so I'm, I'm, I, I don't know if I'm asking you anything or if I'm just sort of making connections. <laughs> no, yeah, I, I kind of, I think that like part of why the whiteness uh, bothers me a little bit is that there's a very stark difference between sort of like what's in the panels and what's outside yes, of the panels. Yes. And I, I, you know, I feel a compulsion to blur that a little bit. Um, I like having art that comes in and out of the panels. Uh, there's a sequence in the second chapter where Hans jumps out of a panel to avoid um, a hallucination. Mm. And he like waits outside of the panel for it to go by. And that was one of my favorite sequences um, because one, I get to draw a, a plain shark dragon, which was like, hell yeah. But <laughs> two, it was just this idea that Hans is like so out of his mind with fear and drugs and just mostly fear like he's he's inventing new and exciting kinds of fear at this Mm -hmm. point in his brain chemistry that like nothing is real and especially not panels yes Like well, he is that's so cool. out of his mind. Yeah. There's nothing I like two of the things that I love most in comics are so fucking nerdy. So it's the lettering. I really <laughs> feel like lettering can like change a comic entirely. And then oh, I right. and then it's the way people play with the borders around panels and play with breaking panels or they set up a whole like rule and you get used to it and then like what you did it sounds like then they like fuck with it and they're like ha and now my character's outside yeah. the panel I think that's why I like Gwenpool so much and um yeah. is like the way that she messes with with panels and everything so I don't know I think it's just it's such a fun comic on so many levels it's like you know if you're a history buff it's like really interesting in a certain way. If you know much about grim fairy tales or just folklore and storytelling in general, it hits sort of a different spot. If you're just a nerd about comics, it hits like a different spot. (laughs) And if you're like me and you're in that, like the Venn diagram where all of those meet, like this is a really, really special comic in that way. And and then you add the philosophical components and it's just like brain candy. You know, my brain is like, oh my God, I'm going to process this forever. You're making me so happy right now because half of making this comic is just me putting things in and being like, oh man, I wonder if anyone's going to get this Mm. and like giggling madly to myself. (laughs) Well, that's beautiful. (laughs) all of the time. Yeah. It's, I'm doing it for you guys. Oh, this this is, yeah, this one's for you guys. That one got me. The nerds. The fellow nerds. nerds. (laughs) Um, You know, you've you've sort of alluded to this, so I'm not sure how how much we'll have to talk about in this question, but I I feel like I want to... I want to like know the order. I always want to like tidy things up in my brain. So I'm thinking about how Hans Vogel is dead has had this long journey to publication. <laughs> it, you know, it started <laughs> as a web comic. Then I think I read that you funded a Kickstarter. Yeah. So I uh, it started as a well. If you want to go all the way back, of course I do. Uh, it's it started as a comic that I was drawing for extra credit in my high school German class in 2010. Stop. Yeah. And the the original iteration of Hans Vogel is dead. He was not actually dead, and it was not actually set in World War II. Uh, Hans was a Hessian soldier in the American Revolution, and he gets separated from his group, and he ends up sort of like getting adopted by a bunch of Pennsylvania Dutch. 
and he liked desserts. I did not get very far in that iteration. <laughs> um <laughs> Because it was not as interesting as like <laughs> other iterations of it, clearly. But yeah, I was like, I'm going to make a comic. And my German teacher, bless her heart, was like, okay, <laughs> I'll give you extra credit for it, I guess. <laughs> but I've, I've always been this unhinged uh, and ready to go at any, at any given point. <laughs> so then how many years between that and you actually starting to draw Hans Vogel is dead? So I, I sort of put it on ice when I went to college. Mm. And then when I was in Austria after college, uh, that's sort of where I was like, okay, I can sort of make this into an actual thing mm. instead of sort of a vague idea. And I, I did a lot of research while I was in Europe, specifically for Hans Vogel, because I wanted to like, I was like, well, I'm here. I might as well uh, be, be getting into stuff. And I, I was there coinciding with the uh, 100-year centennial of the start of World War I. Um, so it was, it was very fortuitous for me because there were a lot of museums that were having exhibits specifically ah. on World War One, and Austria, <laughs> I don't know if you know, was quite involved, uh, <laughs> in, in the war. Um, they, they had something to do with it. Just a little something. Pretty big deal. A little something. Pretty big deal over there. Uh, so I was able to sort of just shovel all of that into my brain. Frantically, every town that I went to, there was a memorial to the wars, the world wars, and I made sure to photograph the memorials. They were usually mm-hmm. both wars in one because it's a lot more socially acceptable to have a World War One memorial if you're in a German-speaking country than a World War II memorial, but you still want to process that. So, like, it's tricky. Yeah. <laughs> um, things get messy. But, uh, yeah, I came home from... Austria and was working a job I didn't really like and was like you know what I've got time I'm living with my parents so I might as well uh, take advantage of this and and I started updating on I think it was it was Thursdays at first and then I went to Tuesdays and Thursdays and now I'm back to Thursdays mm. but I was 100% certain that nobody else was going to want to read this comic than me which sort of allowed me to be as like weird with it exactly as yeah. I wanted, which I do think was great. I felt very not self-conscious about it because I didn't think anyone was reading it. And then I ended up going back to school in 2017. And I, I tried to keep Hans Vogel away from uh, my school stuff for for various reasons. But uh, in in 2018, I was actually scouted by Dark Horse. Mm. And we went through like six months of pitching. And at the end of it, they turned me down at the last stage. I was devastated. Oh, I, was, <laughs> I was truly devastated. But, you know, I kept kept working at it. And in 2020, I pitched to, I've been, I've been pitching pretty much this entire time, but I pitched to Cast Iron, which was a micro publisher in the UK, and it got picked up. And this was, I finished volume one in 2020. I paid for, out of my own pocket, a limited print run of 50, mm-hmm. then sold out in three days, which was very surprising oh. to me. Um, <laughs> delighted. Thank you to all the friends and family who <laughs> got that. Uh Cast Iron picked it up. They ran a Kickstarter in 2021, Mm. um, which was successful. And then uh, I think the official book release was in 2022, in like March. And that was a chaotic month because my like agent at the time left the industry. So I was like (laughs) between agents and my book was coming out, (laughs) which publishing is a is a strange story to be sure um got another agent 
Cast Iron reached out and said, hey, we can't get distribution in the United States. You should probably look for another publisher. So I was like, well, this is great. I've lost an agent and a publisher this year. Very cool. But I reached out to Jenny, the editor that I had that had scouted me before. And I was like, hey, Jenny, do you are you at all even a little bit interested in this book? Um, here's all of the stats about like how it's done. Ah. And ah. <laughs> uh, I got so lucky and they were like, yes, I am absolutely still interested in it. And I think it was like a two week turnaround. Like it was, it wow. was so fast. So, and so different from your entire experience before. Yes. Something going fast. <laughs> yeah. Are you kidding me? In publishing something moved quickly. I don't believe it. I was, I was very shell shocked um, to use a, an appropriate discussion. So that was like a dream come true pretty much. Um, the emotional roller coaster wow. to get there. But uh, they picked up all three books, so I am working on book two, and they let me keep the webcomic, which I'm very, very excited and grateful for. And I, I couldn't be, ha- I'm like a happy little, little clam, little oh. poor sponsored clam. Well, you know, it's, it's. I, I feel like every time we talk to someone about an independent project, a creator-owned project, it's a lot of the twists and turns, a lot of like, oh, I thought it was there, I thought I was good, and then... You know, I'm thinking about Mari Naomi, who was like, oh, yeah. And then, mm-hmm. like, they stopped publishing me because, you know, yeah. they were just done with me. And it's like, Mari fucking Naomi? Such a nightmare. It's like, Sierra yeah. Barnes? No, you're going to stop publishing? You're not going to publish? Like, it's like, but <laughs> I can saying. see these. I can see how good these are. What are you talking about? And it's like, because it is a bit of a crapshoot. Publishing is, yeah. They, they sort, I think we try to make a science of it. We try to be like, oh, you do this and you do this and you do this. And it's like, you can do everything right and not get published. And you can do everything wrong and get published. Like, as yeah. much as there is some rhyme or reason, that's also a moving target. It's constantly changing because agents leave the industry and publishers close down and someone can't get the rights to this. And so it's, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm curious, I guess, do you have any, like, what kept you going when you were like, wow, I'm getting all these no's? And and I guess, is there any like nugget of sort of encouragement or advice you might have for other creators, uh, <clears throat> myself, about like pushing through <laughs> that sort of disappointment, the twists and turns and keeping true to your your interest and your vision? I, I'm like, for one thing, the frustration is real. This is a hard industry. Um, mm-hmm. And there have definitely been times that I... I have a little post-it note that I wrote in 2019 uh, when I was still sort of like trying to finish Hans Vogel and I didn't have any publishers that I felt were interested in it. And I was like, if I quit comics, this is my plan. I'm going to work in this day job. I am going to like do X, Y, and Z. And and then this is what my life is looking like mm-hmm. if I don't do comics. Um, and it's not it's not fun. Um, but like, I don't know, the, the thing that I've sort of found is that if you turn around and, and look at the anxiety in the face and sort of evaluate it as a realistic option, you'll find ways that you're like, oh, actually, this isn't quite as, as realistic or dire as I, as I thought it was. Yeah. And the other part of it is that like, I just really love this project. Mm-hmm. And several people who I, I still consider good friends uh, after Dark Horse turned me down told me that I should just quit mm-hmm. and that it would it would make a good uh, resume for future things. But, you know, I've, I've already put too much work into it. And if no one's going to pick it up, then it's not worth continuing mm. if it causes me this pain. And um, 
I'm not proud of it, but the spite from that conversation has <laughs> propelled me through a lot of things. <laughs> and um, yeah, there there's a lot of people who have told me that this isn't going anywhere and that it's it's not good enough. Um, mm. And I I also in, enjoy a little I, a little spite and malice in my heart. Um, <laughs> Brun, Brunhilder is the character that I relate to the most because I feel like she uh she ferries dead people around and that's a job that no one should envy um and she carries that spite in her heart and i see and respect that and she gets a chance to tell assholes off because she's the biggest baddest bitch in the room Mm -hmm. and i would also like to be the biggest baddest bitch in the room (laughs) so yeah um spite is a perfectly legitimate motivator exactly uh Sometimes you got to let yourself just feel the feels. Mm -hmm. And if you got to wallow in despair a little bit, yeah, that's perfectly valid. But then after a little bit, you got to go, okay, time to get up. And then you get up and you work on pages. And sometimes uh, I'm a big believer in little treats. Mm -hmm. I think that little treats and tasty beverages are (laughs) what life is about. Um, And if there's one thing that I've learned from studying fascism, this much is that fascists love ascetic denial of self and and living a hard life for hard people and that shit sucks um it sucks ass actually in not a fun way so i think that it's uh important and anti-fascist to uh treat yourself nicely take a little nap buy a cute little sticker from an artist you admire go get some boba exactly um live be nice to yourself yeah live in the workout though being a being who's alive yeah Working out is good and and stops you from from going fully insane. Um, but you know, yeah. Ah, uh, be nice to people. Make make friends in comics. That's my other big that piece is of advice. Really, make I, friends I think in that's comics. Super important. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Before we before we wind down, yeah. making friends in comics uh, is the only way to go. We are not in competition. We are all in this together. Exactly. And I cannot stress enough. Um, when I say that you never know who is going to do something really, really cool that you can be there to support. Mm. And that's, uh, that's a beautiful thing in comics. Mm. Mm. Wow. I, I mean, there's so many beautiful nuggets in this, in this conversation today from thinking about fascism and, and what it means to be a, a person in, in, in progress. Um, you know, what it means to to do good, not because you're going to get something from it, but because it's actually the right thing to do. Uh, you know, what, a publishing and the get, navigating the yeah. I like person in progress. Yeah. I like that a lot, actually. I might steal that. Steal Hans away. is very much a person in, in progress. Steal away. He's working on it. Yeah. And and like, I think it's really beautiful that when Hilda's like, yeah, no, you're fucked, man. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> Sorry. And he's like, I- I'm I fucked, aren't I? <laughs> you know? like, I do really like that Hans. Hans's whole thing is that he's like he's in denial. He's really good about mm-hmm. being in denial. He grew up in the Third Reich. He's really good about being mm-hmm. in denial. And it's not that he isn't seeing that there's weird shit happening around him after he dies. He's just like choosing not to believe it. He's <laughs> like, just there's like, a plausible reason for all of this. You know, like like any of the skeptics yeah. inside, like inside of a, a sci-fi or fantasy novel, who are like, no, no, no. It's plausible. Or like the people of Sunnydale who I've been rewatching Buffy, forgive me. Sunnydale people who are like, (laughs) I don't know. They must have been on PCP. You know, it's like, oh my God. (laughs) 
Yeah, Hans was like, I just met a talking fox and a witch tried to eat me, but that's probably just England. You know, you know I, I don't, I don't really know. know a lot about England. I don't even so. speak English, so maybe this is just yeah. customs here. I couldn't say. <laughs> it's weird that the foxes speak German in England, but like, I don't know. It's also convenient. Shit. I'll take it. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's so funny. But this has been delightful. You are you are so funny. You are so insightful. I think that Hans Vogel is dead is such an incredible journey is such an incredible comic to sit with. It's beautiful. It's shocking. It's heart-wrenching. It's powerful. It's all those things. And um, it's also just good eye candy. So I hope that uh, all of our listeners will pick it up. Um, They can also check out your webcomic. I'm curious if you have anywhere you would like to share any websites and, and then any social media platforms you'd like to share with our listeners. Yeah, um, I have my website is sierrabravoart.com uh, and you can you can find me there um, for as long as, as Twitter exists. Um, Sierra Bravo Art, though, I will be I will be staying there, but I will be deleting most of my tweets from there in light oh, of yeah. events. Um, but I am on Blue Sky and Instagram also as Sierra Bravo Art on Instagram. It's underscores under all of them. But, you know, if you want to, like, feel imp- compelled to send me uh, an email saying things like, wow, Sierra, your comic is so cool from the website. Yeah, do that. That's cool. <laughs> I'm gonna go and right I now. would like to say that that um, I got permission from my editor to show Hans's literal butt in Chapter 6. So stay tuned. <laughs> we have booty <laughs> booty coming soon. booty ahoy um yeah amazing again i wanna, I know what the people want you do you do i want to <laughs> thank you one more time this has just been delightful i appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us listeners thank you so much for being here we are so grateful for you i it's almost a compulsion now friends i have to make the joke you know we could be here without you but it would be awkward. Uh, so thank you for joining uh, us and tuning in. Har, 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 har. Um, <laughs> if anyone actually laughs at that ever, let me know because that would make my life. Because I'm like, now I think it's a stim. I don't think I can do an episode without saying it. Uh, you know, I want to thank Sarah and Monica for all their hard work. Y'all are doing great stuff and I've been loving the interviews. Thank you, been Sarah on. and Monica. Yes, you rule. Kate, thank you for making us sound good and for editing out all the weird things I do. I always am like, wow, <laughs> I sound like a professional. Uh, and I appreciate that. Because I work real hard at this, even if I am a bit of a space cadet. Patrons, oh my goodness, I can never thank you enough. You are everything for us. You keep us going. If you would like to become a patron, you know what to do. Patreon.com slash Queerspec. We would love to have you. And I just want to thank everybody out there doing their best to make the world a better place. We need each other. We need you. Give each other a hug. If you don't like touch, give each other a space high five, whatever feels good to you. Love you all. And Sierra, one more time. Thank you so freaking much. Thank you. You guys are the best. Woo woo woo. You're listening to Bitches on Comics, distributed by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Find more shows like Bitches on Comics by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm. Thank you for listening to Bitches on Comics. We are a bi-weekly podcast where we talk to your favorite comics and pop culture creators and critics about what matters to them in comics and pop culture, as you might have guessed. You can follow us on Twitter at at Bitches on Comics and on Instagram at at Bitches on Comics. Our website is 
brace yourself. Bitchesoncomics.com. If you go there, you can listen to any of our episodes. And we've got other shit that we put on tabs. I don't remember what it is. I am in charge of updating the website, however, so good luck. Thanks for the heads up. I'll go to this website now. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also support the podcast by joining us on Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash queerspec to learn more. I'm Sarah Century, and you can find me at www.sarahcentury.com and Twitter and Instagram. Still Sarah Century on those. I'm S.E. Fleenor. You can learn more about me at sefleenor.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at S.E. underscore Fleenor. I'm Monica Estrella and you can find me at www.audreysrevenge.com or on Twitter at Audrey Revenge. Bitches on Comics is recorded by Kate Warner, who plays in the band Churchfire. You can find them at churchfiremusic.com. Our music is recorded by Katie Taylor, who plays as Earth Control Pill. You can find her music at earthcontrolpill.bandcamp.com. Bitches on Comics is recorded in Denver, Colorado. We want to recognize the indigenous peoples who have inhabited and do inhabit this land. The Arapaho Nation, the Ute Nation, the Cheyenne Nation, and others who have been erased from our history and collective memories through colonization. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.